want to ask you a question tonight. What simple command is repeated throughout Old and New Testament more than any other? To be exact, it's repeated 365 times as if to correlate with every day of our life. It is the simple phrase, do not fear or fear not. I'm making those one and the same. Does that impact you? Does that pique your curiosity that the Scripture's most repetitive command to you pertains to your fear? Do not fear. Right now in this room, currents of promise swirl around us as words come, as the Spirit moves. And the only thing keeping some from receiving that promise as a life-changing reality is an unspoken dread called fear. If you could overcome your fear, if you could receive an antidote tonight to neutralize your fear, you would activate your faith. And with faith, you would have the victory that overcomes the world. That's what we want. I want to submit that fear is the feeling we get when we have misplaced our trust. Fear is not the feeling we get when we have placed our trust nowhere. Rather, it is the feeling we get when we have placed our trust in the wrong thing. In Psalms 56, the psalmist simply states, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. That statement by itself indicates that fear reminds him of a trust that he needs to have in God that he's not having for some reason. So the psalmist, he felt that the remedy for fear was trust. And if that is the case, then we can infer that the source of fear is misplaced trust. You would say it's distrust. But trust is always somewhere. You can't do anything without faith. You can't wake up in the morning and put your shoes on without faith. You can't sit down on a chair without having some measure of faith that it's going to support you when you plop into it. You can't drink a glass of water without some trust that that water is going to be okay. Everything in life requires trust where you take to yourself unverified help and you live by it. The question is, where do you put your trust? And for most people, the answer is in themselves. But that means you've lived your whole life worshiping a God slowly dying. And so the end of a life lived by faith in self is ultimate misery, loss, and isolation. Because every single one of us is going to die. Every single one of us is going to lose all our faculties. And so we're worshiping a God who's dying along with us. That doesn't seem very worth it. In Isaiah 28, also quoted in Romans 10 and 1 Peter 2, the Lord says, the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Perhaps 
that statement illuminates why we trust. Because we don't want to be put to shame. Trust is a choice we make driven by the question of embarrassment, the question of shame, the question of failure. Somebody calls up and says, I'm having such a hard time trusting. No, you're not. You're having a hard time trusting God. But you're not having a hard time trusting. Every assessment of distrust towards someone else is based on trust in yourself. Because you cannot assess except through eyes that you trust. And you cannot judge except with a mind that you trust. So while evaluating others' trustworthiness, you yourself are still the judge. You are still in the position of the one being trusted, relied upon. Unless God mediates that choice for you by the assurance of His Spirit, it's the blind leading the blind. In Matthew 6.25, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's trying to say, you're focused on the things that don't really pertain to life. They are things that are superficial by comparison. In John 14, he says, I give you peace. But then he qualifies it and he says, My peace that I give is not as the world gives. But do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You believe in God, believe also in me. And the thing that gets me in this last statement is he simply says, the peace that he's giving is not like the world's. And then he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be fearful. And so we ask, what is the world's peace? Does the world give peace? Does it offer tranquility? Does it try to calm us and hush our problems? I remember Sister Cindy Owen when she gave her testimony. She said that she had lived for God in the context of the world for decades. And nobody gave her much mind. But as she began to press into the kingdom of God and her life began to change and victory began to come, everybody was more alarmed. And she said that she realized that the kind of comfort that they had provided her up to that point was like a baby rocking him back to sleep. And every time her hunger for God would reach a critical point, shh, 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 it's okay, it's okay. And that's pretty much what the world can do for us. It can numb the pain and it can divert your attention from the approaching disaster, but it can never actually change the situation. So the greatest industry in the world 
is technology and entertainment. And they both do the same thing. They divert lonely, scared people from the reality of life and death, of heaven and hell. They distract people from the choices in the periphery of their vision that would challenge them to make decisions that would change the course of their life forever. The world's peace is compromise and distraction. That's pretty much it. Compromise, distraction, and numbing. I think that's the holy trinity of the world's peace. If there's a conflict, let's acknowledge that neither side is right and neither side is wrong and split it up the middle. If there's a legitimate problem that we cannot avoid, then let's just distract ourselves from it. And if the pain cannot be handled, let's just numb it. Never in the history of the world have more youth and more people in general been addicted and dependent on mood-altering drugs. One study in 2013 showed that children from the ages of two up were being given mood-altering drugs seven times as frequent as their parents were made to believe who were putting them in those institutions. The CDC estimated in 2018 that the use of mood-altering drugs in youth under the age of 18 was dispensed at ten times the necessary volume. We know the statistics, though. We don't see joy on the rise. We don't see a proliferation of happiness. We don't see marriages holding together and families thriving. And so we've got to come out with more iPhones. We've got to get more technology. We've got to amp up the entertainment. We've got to distract them with political football. We've got to do anything to keep these masses calm. Because if they ever wake up and rub their eyes, they're going to realize they're heading toward a precipice and they might turn to God. They might change the course of their life forever. And so Jesus preached and lived in a time described as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, peace through strength. And he wanted to make a stark distinction between the world's kind of peace and God's. So he said, I, I do give you peace, but it's not like the world's peace. And he did not play games. He plainly stated, in this world, you will have tribulation, misunderstanding, duress, hardship. That's what that word means. But don't be afraid, because I have overcome the world. There is a victory that you can tap into that is already proven victorious over this troubled world. He doesn't offer you distraction. He asks you to focus and to engage. He doesn't offer you compromise. He asks you to choose and align all the energy and power of your existence behind a choice called a conviction. 
and he doesn't give you numbing medicine. He asks you to turn to him and allow him to be an ever-present help in a time of trouble. Peace I give you not as the world gives, so give I to you. And the devil is multiplying anxiety today like never before. The majority of Americans maintain a constant state of apprehension for the future of this country. And that was before COVID-19. What does Hebrews, the second chapter, tell us? It tells us that the devil controls everyone, anywhere, through one primary mechanism. What is the primary mechanism, Hebrews 2.14, that the devil uses to manipulate people for his will? Fear. If you are the captive of fear, you are the subject of the enemy. Willingly or unwillingly, you do not need to be controlled by fear. If you feel helpless in the face of your fear, I want you to know tonight from the Word of God that doesn't have to be anymore. God is going to show you that you can be set free from the power of the devil, which in other words is the power of fear. He says in Hebrews 2 that the devil holds us in bondage all our lifetime through the fear of death. And he says, for this reason, Jesus had to become like us because we are caught in these fleshly mortal bodies and terrified of losing our lives. God who loved us had to limit himself to the human life of a man so that in our frailty he could minister to our frailty. In our fears, he could lead us out of fear and into faith. In our death-bound existence, he could show us resurrection and open a new and living way to God, to heaven, to eternal life. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself also partook of the same that through his death he might render powerless. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lifetimes. Jesus disarmed the one who holds death as his threatening weapon. He disarmed him by dying. How did Christ disarm the devil by dying? If you're afraid of dying and someone uses the threat of death to cajole your obedience, your slavish submission, that fear is going to make you their willing servant until the day comes when you say, I'm willing to die, but I'm not willing to do your will any longer. That's what Jesus did. He said, bring it on. Bring the worst you've got to offer. They brought mockery, they brought lies, they brought hatred, they brought abuse, they brought a whip to his back and a cross, and they nailed him to that cross, 
And everybody thought it was the end and everything was over. But the God who filled the life of Jesus, he let him go into that tomb. And when the stone was rolled away, three days later, he came back into that body and he walked out of the tomb. And he basically showed us that if we're not afraid of losing our lives, we don't have to be the slave of the one who wields death any longer. If we believe in short that there is something beyond the grave and that we can rise in that resurrection with the Lord, then death is not the end and death is not the victor and we are not its slave. Now fear is a spirit. It's not a feeling that you have. It's a spirit that torments you. Oh, it may be a feeling also, but it's a spirit. Because in Romans 8, he says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption or sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So there are two spirits, a cowering spirit that does the devil's bidding because we don't want to die, die to something, die to our life, whatever it is, we don't want to die. That's one spirit, and it's a powerful one. All the world lies under the control of that spirit. And then there's another spirit, it's a spirit of sonship, where the same confidence Jesus had that his life was in God's hands. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That same confidence comes into us. And so we can say, God, I'm asking you to take this situation away. That's the only time Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, facing his death, he said, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Please get me out of this situation. But then he exerted that relationship and he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that spirit that filled Jesus, that spirit of God that lived in him without measure, it can come to live inside of us. The majority of the people in this room, you have been born of that spirit. Everybody in this room has experienced that spirit. And if you let that spirit take the throne of your life, there's always going to be a flesh that asks, please get me out of this. That's okay. We should ask that. But then you're going to follow it up with that resolve of conviction, that surrender to the Spirit of God, and you're going to say, but nevertheless, God, whatever your will is, help me to glorify your name. And he's going to say, you've just glorified it, but you'll glorify it again. But I started by saying fear is misplaced trust. Jesus trusted that God knew the outcome. Jesus trusted his life to the eternal will of God. He knew that God knew the outcome. If he had been trusting in anything else, he would have become the slave of fear. If he had trusted his best friends, he would have fallen prey to fear again. 
If he had trusted the justice system, he would have been sorely disappointed and become terribly frightened. But he had placed no confidence in the flesh. He was entrusting himself to no man, for he knew the heart of man, that it was evil. Instead, he was trusting in God. With David, he was saying, all my times are in your hand. And as the apostle would later say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed into his care until that day. He trusted more than his own perspective, more than his own needs, more than anything, more than his own life. He trusted God. That was the obedience that he exemplified, spoken of in Philippians 2. And God was present with him. And when God is present, fear is absent. When fear is in the lead, you are not in the Spirit of God. You have come back under this spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When God is with you, the one who knows the end from the beginning, and when you are with him, you just don't feel that same dread. Listen to what the Lord says about God being present and fear being absent. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you and he will never forsake you. If God is with you, you don't need to be afraid. Joshua 1, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalms 34, I sought the Lord and he heard me. This translation said, and he answered me. And what did he do? If you're caught in fear, you're outside the presence of God. But if you get out of this mind of the flesh, if you get out of this limited perspective of the flesh and get into the zone of grace, get into the realm of of God's eternal purpose revealed through His Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to say, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from every one of my fears. So many times, fear is due to a partial perspective, specifically a carnal perspective. That's the story of the young man with the prophet, right? The servant of the young man, he's with the prophet and he's just really freaked out. And the prophet prays and he's like, God, would you get this guy out of his own perspective? Something like that. And he saw that they were surrounded by heaven's armies. Amen. There were people in the Bible who turned out to be great, courageous warriors of truth who started out as pitiful little cowards. Saul, 
hiding in the stuff. God had to change his perspective. God had to change his heart. Didn't he? Even Peter, trembling before a servant girl. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Something had to change, didn't it? When that servant girl plied him with questions, he stood outside Caiaphas's house. I've been in Caiaphas's house, and below the house were dungeons, and his Lord was going to spend the night in those dungeons. But as Brother Hosea pointed out when we were in that house, he said the same Peter who lied and denied the Lord because he was scared of those dungeons just a few chapters later after being filled with the Holy Spirit, he was sleeping in those dungeons. You think something has changed? The angel had to wake him up. Come on, buddy. It's time for a prison break. Huh? Oh, yeah. Something changed. I think if he had been the same, he would have been... Uh, no, but he had something that dispelled those fears, didn't he? I've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask you again. Why do you think Peter ties humility to anxiety? Why does he say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and then not even take a breath and say, cast all your anxiety on him? Why does Peter tie humility or pride with anxiety? Because anxiety is just describing the feeling of pride losing control. If you've got your trust in the wrong place and things start going that you didn't expect, all that can result is a whole lot of anxiety. Packages of panic exploding all over the place. That just describes the feeling of pride losing control. Whereas if you've already surrendered control in humility, then when things don't go the way you expected, that's okay. Because your peace wasn't built on things going the way you expected. Your peace was built on God being in control, on His character, His love, His goodness, His nearness to you. Now, if you're not in His will and things start going cattywampus, then you're going to want to humble yourself and make sure His presence is near you and that you are in His will. It's no fun to be encountering haywire and know that you're not in God's will. In Philippians, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. What is the remedy for anxiety? Get back in the Spirit. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With... Oh, Paul must have written that and thought, oh, but there's a kind of prayer. <laughs> I better qualify it. It's got to be a prayer that's thankful. Because the dying rabbit prayers don't work, except to attract predators. <laughs> so everything by prayer and supplication... You know, those temper tantrums where we beat the wall and tell God what he ought to do, those aren't prayers. And if they had thanksgiving, you wouldn't be in that mode. Whenever you go into the room sure what ought to happen and just hoping that God will finally bend to do your will, not going to happen. You don't know what your life is. 
You don't know what your life needs. You don't know how to fill his purpose, but he does. And if you'll go in with that humility and say, Lord, I don't like this. This isn't how I thought it was supposed to be. But God, all my times are in your hand. I surrender that also. Would you please help me to know that I am with you and you are with me? In this world, I'm having tribulation, but I won't fear if I know that I'm with you who has overcome the world. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You can't be thanking him for something and accusing him for the same thing at the same time. You ever heard accusatory prayers? Please, God, I think you're so unfair for doing this, but please, God. I have. And then he says this, and the peace of God, that kind Jesus spoke about that he said wasn't like the world gave. And the peace of God, which you can just slide under your mental microscope and understand in a jiffy, will alight occasionally on your heart, but it'll go away as fast as it came. This is the old dying translation. He says, and the peace of God, which of course you'll understand if somebody explains it 50,000 times to you. No, the peace of God, which is totally inexplicable and totally other and aside and above and beyond your head, that's my New Living Translation, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I've shared with you that that word guard means a sentry at arm, posted to protect. Thank you, Jesus. There's a kind of peace that doesn't let the devil talk to you. There's a kind of peace that doesn't entertain the fiery darts of Satan, but stops them with the shield of a stubborn faith. The kind of peace that the Lord gives you it's not, let me lay here and see what happens. It says, I have trusted God, and I will not let you cross the threshold of my soul with your poison arrows of lies and doubts. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Get thou behind me, Satan. Now, the Bible indicates to us in two places that the devil's a quitter and that he has no perseverance. If you are not a quitter and you have some perseverance, you will repel him. You say, well, I've tried that and it didn't work. I submit to you that you did not try it because let God be true and every man a liar. You know where I'm going. James says, resist the devil and he will slowly back away. Is that what James says? Resist the devil and he'll lighten a tad. Is that what James says? What does he say? He says, resist the devil and he will run away from you. That's what that means. Have you ever seen the devil running? Oh, yeah, you have. When those airtight arguments that sounded so reasonable that had locked you in a place of unbelief and helplessness 
when they came into the light of day and were shown up to be the frauds and charlatans that they were, and they went scurrying out of the building faster than you could say, Jack Frost, that was the devil fleeing from you. Amen? When doubts, fears, paranoias went running away as the love of God poured in, that was the devil fleeing from you. You say, well, I tried resisting, but he didn't flee. Well, until he does flee, you haven't resisted. How does Peter say the same thing? He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Who am I going to get? Now, who does the lion look for? He's proud, he's strong, he's vicious, ferocious, he's hungry, terrifying, roaring, rah. And who does he look for? Well, of course, the strongest man in the bunch, right? No. He picks on you because you haven't built yourself up in your most holy faith. He picks on you because he observes every high thing and you haven't humbled yourself. He picks on you because you're isolated and you're not locked in with relationships that would support you. He picks on you because you're sick, because your faith is feckless, wobbly. But what does Peter say? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then he says, resist him firm in your faith. You got wobbly faith? You're going to have yo-yo victories. You ever seen a yo-yo up and down, up and down, up and down? Because you're picked on by the devil. Every time you're down, he's there picking on you. Oh, and then you got a victory. Woo, praise you. But there is a kind of faith that is not optional. That is not merely you saying, wow, that really affected me. But it's you saying, I have heard from God. And I have bound my flesh with cords to the horns of the altar. And so help me, Jesus, if I ever move from this place of conviction that your word has brought me to, here I make my stand, not by my own strength, but by your grace. I'm going to stay in a place of humility, and you're going to keep empowering me through the haris of the Holy Spirit. He says, resist him firm in your faith. He doesn't tell us, like James did, that he will flee, but he will. You look at people around you who are victorious, and you say, well, they've never gone through what I have. In all likelihood, they've gone through a lot worse. You think the devil didn't pick on Job? You think he didn't pick on Paul? You think he didn't pick on Brother Abraham and Sister Hannah? as they were losing their five-year-old those five years ago. Oh, he picks on everybody. And some of the weaknesses that come to us, we can't help. It's growing old. It's sickness. It's tragedy. And he knows when we're weak, and he knows when we're down, and he picks on us. Amen. And if you feel pitiful and sorry for yourself, oh, he's going to really pick on you. But the one person he can't get is the person resolute in their faith who has heard from God. How does faith come? And hearing? How does fear come? By hearing. And hearing? By the word of defeat. 
Fear is just faith in the enemy. That's all it is. Just like when the Word of God comes to you and gives you a feeling, an internal energizing, this something that says, I can be different. I can change. I can get that. That's faith. And if it's living faith, it's going to manifest itself in actions. In the same way, when you hear the devil, if you don't already have your shield up, he's going to slip that dart right into your heart. And if he can mess with your emotions, he's got you. You've got to learn to guard your emotions. When he tells you to take up the shield of faith, he also talks about the breastplate of righteousness. You've got two layers of protection on your heart. Because from it flow the issues of life. When he says to take up the shield of faith, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can deflect some of Satan's more minor attacks. Is that what he says? Now what does he say? He says, take up the shield of the faith, meaning that he's picturing a lot of Christians have their shield on the ground. He says, take it up with which you will be able, you are empowered is the word, to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. If a fiery dart gets into your heart, it's because you let down your guard. If your emotions are poisoned and you start getting all messed up in your thinking and feelings, whose fault is it? It's yours. You've got to keep that faith shield up. And he says you will be able to quench every one of his fiery darts. But that's that militant kind of peace that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I think it was Martin Luther said, the thoughts are like birds. They may fly over, just don't let them nest. When something comes by, and it's heat-seeking missiles of the devil. I typically think it's self-pity-seeking missiles of the devil. They just kind of follow self-pity through the crowd, sniffing it out. Whoop, there it is! When that missile is coming, you have a choice to stand there and be pitiful or to pick up your faith and say, No, I rebuke this in Jesus' name. I may be tired, I may be low, I may have fallen down, but I'm lifting my faith up even while on my knees. And I will not let this lie, this doubt, this fear cross the threshold of my life. In Ephesians he says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to ever understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So there are two things that totally surpass our understanding. God's love, which is known through His presence. 
and peace. God's calm that comes on us even in the midst of the storm. And it is a calm based on the trust we have put in Him. In Colossians, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the same word used for like Pontius Pilate was ruler over this area. It means a governor. If peace is the ruler, it makes choices about who crosses borders, doesn't it? It makes decisions about what's allowed inside. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we've talked about the fact that fear is the power of the enemy by which he makes us slaves. We've talked about the fact that anxiety is the feeling of pride losing control. We've talked about the fact that faith is the repellent for the fiery darts and that we have the power to keep that faith up and stop every one of those darts. Now, just to sum it up, Jesus says, I give you power and authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Whenever you start feeling that, you say, God, I'm in the wrong mindset. God, I'm in the wrong state of mind and heart. I've got to get out of this place. I've got to get back in the spirit. And if I'm in the spirit, if I'm with you and you're with me, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I'm not going to have any fear. God, I'm trusting the wrong thing. I'm putting my faith in the wrong place. Help me put it in you and I'm going to get out of there. All right, now I'm just going to touch on 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, I've talked about this before, but here we go again. First of all, he says that love casts out fear. Love grabs fear by the seat of the pants and the collar and casts him out. It's not a um, gradual kind of displacement pour enough water in and the ball will come out the top. It's an expulsion. It's like you're gone. Amen? But we tend to think that what he's saying is there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So we think you need to love me more and I will fear less. And so if I'm fearful, we kind of feel a little pitiful. We compound that fear with a, a little whine that it's because I'm not loved. No, that's not true. You already know God's love. He poured it out unreservedly for you on the cross. And he has poured out his love through his Holy Spirit. If you would ever learn to walk in that spirit, pray in that spirit, live in that spirit, his love is available to you in that spirit. But what he's saying is he says, he who fears has not been perfected in love. He's actually bringing an indictment against people who are bound by fear. He's not bringing an admonition to the rest to love them more. I don't dispute that people loving us is part of what gets rid of fear, but that's not what he's saying. I believe the grammar bears it out. What he's saying is the one who fears has not been perfected in loving. If you would surrender to the demands of love, you would displace fear 
in the choice of love's priority. Do you understand what I'm saying? How many of you can relate to the fact that as parents, a child may from time to time come in injured or hurt and they are totally terrified. Maybe they've got blood streaming down their head and your first instinct is to be totally terrified with them, right? But is that what you're able to do? Ah, this is terrible. <laughs> is that what you do as a parent? No. Your love for that child has to displace your fear and focus you on direction for that child that meets their need. You may be scared out of your wits, but you literally have to expel that and meet a need in love. Do you understand? That's how love casts out fear. It focuses on what is needed. It focuses on a remedy to the situation. And it says, God, I can't afford to be paralyzed by panic in this situation. Would you please move through me? And it says, um, honey, it's okay. Come here. Let's just dab this off. And oh, it's going to be fine. And here, let's put the butterfly on. And I'm sure Brother Mark will help us out momentarily. Oh, did you do such a... That's love. Leaving no room for fear. And whenever you feel that panic, you need to know that there's someone besides you who needs your love in that moment. And if you could addict yourself to answering the demands of love, you would overcome the dictates of fear. Amen. I'm not talking about just with kids. Some have an aspiration to move in the gift of the Spirit. Prophecy or teaching, or whatever the case may be. And yet, they're paralyzed by the dread of failing. But the more excellent way is to become fixated through love on meeting the need and completely forget about yourself. You can talk afterwards about how scared you were when it first started, but you're going to forget that fear by engaging in what love demands. Let me give you another example. Let's say a child was in a terribly dangerous position, drowning. You may not feel like you can swim, but in meeting that need, you would dive in with all your heart and you would lose your fear of water because love would displace fear. Active love leaves no room for lurking fear. Activate your love and your fear will get thrown out the window by the seat of its pants. There is no fear in love, but perfect loves cast out all fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Greater love is what he's talking about. This term, perfect love, is parallel to greater love. He's speaking of the same thing. He's talking about an undefiled love. Now, what was the definition of the greater love? Greater love has no man than this. That he forget about himself in meeting his friend's needs. Even to the jeopardy of that life that we don't want to lose. That we've got to be willing to lose in order to lose the control of the devil in threatening to take that life from us. 
Uh, fear of man brings a snare. Fear of man is always about us losing control, not getting our way, dying, losing, etc. Fear of God is exactly the opposite. It's a concern that we not fail Him. It's a concern that we not diminish His power, His goodness, His love, His glory through our inaction, through our neglect. So it's very different. There's a relevant place for that. I'm not going to get deeper into it now. We just know that the fear of the Lord is clean and the fear of man is filthy. The fear of man is cowardly, groveling, yuck. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. It enlightens the mind. It helps you turn away from evil. It's the beginning of a clear head wisdom. It says something's got to be done and I dare not neglect it. The fear of man says something's got to be done but I don't think I can because I don't want to lose my image or my life, or my anything. Okay, I'm going to sum it up here. God provides security for all believers. But this provision is not on our terms. He says, I have a way of ordering relationships like a house. And if you abide in my will you're going to be safe. But we have to choose to abide in His will. Just as surely as living requires a house, so love requires a structure. And love is ultimately our safety. But that love requires a form, a structure, a building. And I have seen Many people, the Bible tells us that husbands should treat their wives in an understanding way because she is the weaker vessel. And Paul tells us that wives should have a covering over them. And this covering is seen when Boaz puts the corner of his garment over Ruth, the kanaf, which signified covenant, but it's covering and it is seen in the covering of God's wings in Psalms 91. It's the same word as in Ezekiel 16 when the Lord says that He gave marriage vows to Israel and He put His kanaf, His covering, over her. So if we see this covering as a shelter, it should be a place where fear doesn't rain. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to God, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his kanaf you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Can we agree that this passage sums up what we're talking about? A shelter, a place, a shade, a refuge, no arrows, nothing can get us in this place. But if you 
start ripping the tin off of your shelter. And the rains, the chilling rains of loneliness pour in. You have no one to blame but yourself. So I see people gripped by fear who do not abide in the order of relationship that God designates between husbands and wives or between any in the body of Christ. If you will not accept his covering, then you must accept the vulnerability, the exposure of your independence. I see people complaining. I'm so afraid in here, but they've kicked out the windows that would stop the wind. They've broken down the door that would keep out the predators. And so the first thing you should ask yourself is, is my fear something to be pitied or does it signify an independence and a rebellion in me that refuses to abide under the shelter of the Almighty? Have my words undermined the covering God would place over me, whether through his body or through his spirit or through your husband or through a brother? What have I done to rip the shingles off and expose my shelter to the elements of a terrifying world? And if you could repent of those, and if you could restore the order and come back into that safe place of surrendered submission to God, he'd put his wing over you. As Jesus said to Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a mother gathers her chicks under her wings. But you weren't willing. And what did he say? If you had known, even you, what makes for your peace. The opposite of fear. But you were not willing. So there are some fears that indicate a lack of submission, a lack of awareness. Could you all agree that if you're suffering with this kind of chronic dread, this chronic instability, anxiety, would you at least agree to prayerfully consider the structure the configuration of your relationships and ask, are they really ordered by God? Or have I put the shingles on the floor and the sheetrock on the top and decided I want my marriage to look like this and I want my family to be like that? Is it built by his design or yours? Because there's something he's designed that is a shelter and a shade, is a safe place under the wings of the Lord. Some... God wants to deliver from their fear of man. Brother Aber, when you were talking, I couldn't help but feel that there are those who want to confess Jesus as their Lord, as the Lord of their life, but they're afraid. They're scared of what others will think of them. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. That love of God is here. And we can take his love into our hearts and we can say, 
God, I trust you. You say, well, how could I trust him? Because you know his love. You have seen his hand at work. You have seen his healing. You have seen his mercy. You have seen his kindness. And you have felt his presence. Don't let the fear of what others would think of you keep you from the relationship that would save your soul. Don't die with your trust still in a dying God of self. Put your trust in him. Jesus, I trust you. Amen. Others are bound in fear of simply worry about not getting their way. You need to die to that deluded mediator of reality called your blinded mind and acknowledge you don't want your way because the way that seems right unto a man ends in death and disappointment. It's horror. So pray to God that you won't get your way. Others would love a relationship that brought power and joy into their life, but they can't worship. Brother Abraham, they can't even lift their hands and trust God with all their hearts because they're terrified of what their peers are going to think. And it's probably because they've mocked others who worship like that and they, they're going to feel like a real fool. But that's what they are. That's what all of us are when we behave like that. Let's just die to that foolishness. Let's shed it. Others want to move forward in service and love for God, but they think they need more anointing. They don't. They need more love. God attaches anointing to love. If they could just get focused on others and lose sight of themselves, though they be no swimmer, God would make them a swimmer. Though they be no warrior, God would make them a warrior. Though they be weak, in their weakness, His power would be made perfect. All of us want to get a little further beyond the confines of our fear. Amen. All of us need to learn to be a little more combative with our faith resistance and repulse and repel the devil until his lies are running out the other door that he came in. Amen. Jesus, help us. When you're with us, we don't fear. Help us to be with you, God.